The Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold the arrival of God's Messiah, God's anointed one. But Isaiah described this Messiah in surprising ways. Isaiah said, looking ahead to the one who was to come as if he had already come, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. God's Messiah would not be impressive when he came. He wouldn't seem very majestic when he came. And yet, Isaiah goes on to say, he's the one to follow. Why? Because through him, God will bring us forgiveness and salvation and life. Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled hundreds of years later in the life of Jesus Christ. Many people were unimpressed by Jesus. A man called Nathaniel was told, we find the one the prophets wrote about. His, he is Jesus of Nazareth. But Nathaniel's response was to be pretty underwhelmed by that announcement. His response was, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And even in Nazareth, they were underwhelmed by Jesus. When he stood up in the synagogue, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, what's so special about him? When people announced they were going to follow Jesus, he said, you need to know what you're getting yourselves into. Foxes have dens to live in. Birds have nests to live in. But I'm homeless, Jesus said. I have nowhere to lay my head. People who are looking for attractive appearances or impressive show, they generally weren't impressed with God's Messiah. It was just as Isaiah had prophesied. And this truth about God's Messiah wasn't just spoken about in prophecy. It was shown in the life of God's Old Testament Messiah, King David. As we've been looking at 2 Samuel over recent weeks, we've waded our way through David's failure. We've seen very clearly David is not a perfect hero. The Bible never claims he was perfect. But in the midst of all this, we have to remember David is God's anointed king. He's the human Old Testament Messiah who foreshadows the divine New Testament Messiah. David is certainly not Jesus. But his kingdom teaches us a lot about Jesus and his kingdom. And this morning, we're going to see God's Old Testament Messiah being overshadowed by a much more impressive alternative. 
Israel has to choose between an attractive deceiver on the one hand and God's anointed king on the other. And the fact is, that's always the choice. It was the choice in David's day. It was the choice during Jesus' first time on earth. And it's the choice today as we wait for Jesus' return to this earth. The choice is always the same. Will we allow ourselves to be seduced by the counterfeit or will we be loyal to God's king? A counterfeit is an imitation that's meant to deceive us. There are always counterfeits around. They just keep coming along. They're always attractive. So we have to keep on making this choice. Turn with me, if you haven't already opened your Bible, to 2 Samuel chapter 15. That's page 319 in the church Bible and page 490 in the large print Bibles. Just to remind you of the background before we read this, several years before this, David's son Amnon had raped his sister Tamar. In response to that, another of David's sons, Absalom, had murdered his brother Amnon. The trouble was, in killing Amnon, Absalom had bypassed the king's justice. Absalom had acted like he was the king. He had also made himself first in line for the throne. Amnon had been heir to the throne. Well, after that incident, Absalom then spent some years in exile before Joab pressured David into bringing him home and reinstating him at the palace. But we saw last week, Absalom showed no sign of repentance. He came back to Jerusalem as arrogant as ever. When Joab didn't jump to follow Absalom's orders, Absalom set Joab's crops on fire. That was the thanks Joab got for bringing him back. And now chapter 15 picks up not long after Absalom's return. We'll read from verse 1 down to verse 23. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses, and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. 
At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Carathites and Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday. And today, shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. This is God's word. This chapter opens with Absalom showing his style. We heard last week about Absalom's physical appearance. He's the heir with the hair. No doubt he was in all the advertising hoardings, on the front of all the magazines, endorsing head and shoulders or whatever the equivalent was. And it wasn't just Absalom's hair that was impressive. Chapter 14 told us, In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Physically, Absalom has it all. And he has the money to surround himself with style. 
Chapter 15, verse 1 says, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Apparently, this was the first time a chariot was seen on the streets of Jerusalem. And there's a good reason why no one else had done it. It serves no practical use. At this point in time, the city of Jerusalem was way, way smaller than it is today. It's hard to know where Absalom could have gone with his chariot and his horses and his 50-man escort that have been forever stopping to turn around. This serves no practical purpose. But it's very impressive. Look at that chariot. I heard he had it imported from Syria with the gold rims and everything. This is all about building an image for Absalom. Flaunting his wealth. Making himself look important. But that's only part of it, of course. The people need to know Absalom has a heart, too. He needs to show that along with the hare and the chariot, he's a man of the people. That's a very hard combination to pull off. But Absalom manages it. He makes that part of his image. He doesn't lie in bed all day like most playboy princes would. Verse 2 says he gets up early. And he intercepts people who are coming to see his father, the king. We've seen before, as the king, David was responsible for justice in Israel. Now, David wouldn't have heard every single case. The minor ones would have been dealt with locally. But if people felt they didn't receive justice at those courts, they could bring their case to the king in Jerusalem. But Absalom positions himself outside the city gate. He gets to those people before they make it to the palace. He takes a very personal interest in verse 2. Where are you from? And then Absalom does what what people with actual responsibility don't have the luxury of doing. He tells everybody they're right. Verse 3. Look, your claims are valid and proper. The text implies that he says that to everybody without looking into their claims. And you'll notice he also implies the king himself doesn't really care about their claim. Where is the king anyway? He's not out on the road greeting people. In reality, of course, David was probably up just as early in the morning, getting on with actually running Israel, making the hard decisions in Israel. And we know from the woman of Tekoa, who we saw last week, he does receive people. He does listen to their cases and their pleas and their claims. But because Absalom has no actual responsibility, He can spend all his time shaking hands and showing sympathy and making impossible promises. Look again at verse 4. Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. That's simply not true. 
No judge can decide in favor of everyone in every case. Sooner or later, he's going to have to disappoint somebody. This is an empty promise, but it sounds great. Absalom is like the opposition party. He can make endless promises without the difficulty of having to deliver them. But somehow, Israel buys it. The guy who weighs his own hair and publicizes the weight, this show-off who rides a chariot up and down the high street with a 50-man bodyguard, somehow he convinces Israel he's as down to earth as Mother Teresa. Look at verse 5. Whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Presumably these people are going to bow because he's the king's son. That would have been a normal show of respect. But Absalom's such a humble guy. He pulls them to their feet and kisses them. Don't bow to me. One writer says, Absalom has finesse and flair and he knows how to work the crowd. Now as you and I look at this from some objective distance, we can see this is all a show. It's a carefully constructed image. But the amazing thing is, it works for Absalom. Verse 6 tells us, he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Stole is the right word. These hearts don't belong to Absalom. They belong to God's anointed king. Absalom has stolen what isn't his. The people have fallen for a counterfeit. They've been won over by the glamour and the promises and the firm handshake. They don't look hard enough to see if there's any character behind the image, any real substance or godliness. The nation of Israel has been fooled. She's allowed herself to be seduced by Absalom's charm. Seduced by the counterfeit king. Maybe we're amazed that Israel is so gullible. How could they fall for this? How could they let this charmer steal their hearts? But aren't we prone to being charmed ourselves? Yes, we can see through the deception here because it's easy when you're looking back, when you have all the information. It's not so easy when you're living with the counterfeit every day. Do you ever find yourself envying the celebrities on TV? Do you ever look at them and look at their lifestyle and feel like your life is pretty boring compared to theirs? But it's all a sham. There's nothing behind the image and the style. The actor Brad Pitt is one of those people who look like they have it all. But he's willing to admit it's all empty. 
This is what he said in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. I'm the guy who has everything. But I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. In 2014, the comedian Robin Williams committed suicide. He had one of the most engaging personalities around. He was larger than life. It seemed he could make just about anybody and everybody laugh and cry. But in reality, he was desperately depressed. He couldn't stand to be alone with himself. We could go on with endless examples like that from the lives of the rich and the famous. And yet, we still get fooled by the appearances sometimes. We think we're missing out because we don't have the fame or the popularity. And don't we sometimes take our cues from what we see? Don't we find ourselves longing for those things, even chasing after them? Isn't that the whole point of those programs about celebrity homes and people getting their dream homes? They make us discontent with what God has given us. They promise us even greater contentment. And we allow them to seduce us and steal our hearts. Here in our passage, Absalom is just one representative of what the New Testament calls Babylon the Great. The book of Revelation pictures this world and its promises as a great prostitute. In John's vision, she's dressed in purple and and scarlet. She's glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She looks amazing. She has the charm and the glamour. But she wants to take God's place. She wants the worship that belongs to God. And in the end, she's making promises she can't keep. She can deliver nothing but disappointment in the end. What she offers us is counterfeit. It's an imitation meant to deceive us. In the end, she has nothing real or lasting to give us. We have to realize Babylon can even slither its way into the church sometimes. We can start admiring style over substance in the church. Glamour over godliness. Powerful personalities over true character. Flashy worship over truthful worship. Now don't get me wrong, of course it honors God when things are done well. There's nothing wrong with good looks and good presentation. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. I'm not saying the things that look the worst and sound the worst are always the best. But let's look for more than just impressive appearances. 
That's the point. Let's be men and women who are impressed by the truly important things, not just the surface things. Because if we only look at the surface of things, we will have our hearts stolen by counterfeits over and over again. Israel has fallen in love with Absalom. They love him, they love what he offers them. And now, having stolen the hearts of Israel, Absalom moves to the next phase of his plan. Verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. This sounds impressive. Absalom can do religious talk as well as he does everything else. The problem is, if he really had made a vow to the Lord, he would not have waited this long to fulfill it. The Old Testament law is very clear. Vows were to be fulfilled quickly. But Absalom was brought back to Jerusalem four years ago. If he was truly thankful to God, he would have done this long before. In reality, he waited four years because he had to steal the hearts of the people of Israel first. Now he's satisfied that job is done. His speeches at the city gate would have influenced thousands of people by this point. And as those people went home, they would be fanning out all over Israel, friends of Absalom. Absalom asks to go now because he feels he has stolen enough hearts. Now he can steal the whole kingdom. This is not a worship mission to Hebron. It's a rebellion mission. In verse 9, David sends him off in peace. But Absalom is planning war. Hebron is about 20 miles from Jerusalem. It's the place where David himself was crowned king. So it's a convenient place and a very symbolic place for what Absalom is going to do. From Hebron, he sends messengers all through Israel, arranging the signal for this rebellion. And he also deceives 200 men from Jerusalem. He invites them to Hebron without telling them this is rebellion. Presumably he does that so they can't help his father David. And we're told Absalom also steals David's star counselor, Ahithophel. He apparently does know what he's getting into. We'll hear more about him next week. But the end of verse 12 sums up the situation. The conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. More and more hearts are being stolen. And they're being stolen by a deception. Absalom has no substance. He's all hair and no character. And most importantly, He has no anointing from God. That's the key point. God has already given Israel a king, and he's in Jerusalem. David is God's provision for Israel. 
And that one fact should have been enough for Israel. No matter how good Absalom looks and sounds, God has made his will clear. He has told Israel who they're to listen to and who they're to follow. And that's what will save you and I from being deceived. God has spoken. He has given us a man to follow. During Jesus' ministry, his father spoke from heaven and said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. That's how we avoid deception. That's how we avoid being seduced. We recognize who the true Savior is. And we keep listening to him and following him no matter what anyone else says. No matter who else or what else might promise us joy or peace or fulfillment or prosperity. We will avoid being deceived and disappointed when we stick with God's man. Back in our passage, that is what some of the Israelites do. In verse 13, the scene shifts from Hebron back to Jerusalem. We're told, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. It seemed to the messenger that everyone was with Absalom. But David is not alone. There are many who are still loyal to God's king. But we might wonder, why does David leave Jerusalem? Wouldn't he be better to dig in and defend it? It is a bit of a fortress. David leaves Jerusalem because he is loyal to his people. In a moment, we'll see the people who are loyal to him. But as Israel's true king, David has Israel's interests at heart here. He leaves because he knows if Absalom had to fight for Jerusalem, he would put the city to the sword. And so if David is going to lose, he's not going to bring Jerusalem down with him. And there's the difference between David, the true king, and Absalom the imposter. Absalom is all about Absalom. But David here, after all his falls in past years, David once again remembers he is king for the sake of God's people Israel, not for his own sake. And so to keep Jerusalem intact, David will leave. If there are battles to be fought, they're not going to be fought in Jerusalem. Verse 16 says, David leaves ten concubines to take care of the palace. Just housekeeping staff. No threat to Absalom. It seems safe to assume they'll be in no danger. And as we'll see, 
That's not how it turns out. We'll see that another time. But here, the focus is on those who leave with David. There may be as many as several thousand of them. But notice, as they leave, there are no chariots. Absalom has the chariot. But there's no glamour here. David and his men march out on foot, away from the comforts of the city and into the wilderness. There's no pomp or majesty in this procession. There's nothing outwardly impressive here. The only reason to follow David is that David is God's Messiah. But really, that's the only thing to consider. Ultimately, style and charm and personality don't count for anything. What matters is who has God chosen? Who has God anointed? At this point in history, it's David. And so these are the wisest people in Israel. They have looked past the appearances. And so they have not been seduced by the counterfeit. They stay loyal to God's king. And in verse 19, the text focuses in on just one of them. His name is Ittai the Gittite. His name tells us he's not even an Israelite. He's from the Philistine city of Gath. Somewhere in the past, he joined David. But now David wants to give him an out. He says in the middle of verse 19, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday. And today, shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. Only yesterday means recently. Ittai hasn't been with David long. And notice in verse 19, David refers to Absalom as King Absalom. Maybe that's a test. David wants to be sure where Ittai's loyalty is. He doesn't want him switching sides further down the road. But look again at the answer David gets in verse 21. Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. David, in verse 20, wished Ittai kindness and faithfulness from the Lord. But Ittai says, if I want to be with the Lord, I need to be with the Lord's king. This foreigner knows better than, any, than many of the Israelites. He knows the wisest, safest place to be is with the Lord's anointed king. That's true even if sticking with the Lord's king means death. That is a remarkable thing to say. 
Ittai is not in this for earthly gain. He's in this even if it means he loses everything on this earth. Ittai wants to be with the Lord. Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so Ittai will stick with the Lord's Messiah no matter what. I don't know how much Ittai understood about Israel's God. But what he says here was put even more clearly by Jesus, the ultimate Messiah. Jesus said to his followers, and we read it earlier, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? That is the choice we all have to make. It's a choice that's constantly going to be challenged in our lives. We're surrounded by enticing counterfeits. And the things that entice each of us might be different for each of us. Attractive ideas, attractive stuff, attractive lifestyles. Just this morning, Megan pointed something out to me in this uh, news magazine. It's a review of a new book. And the book is about why con artists are so successful. And they are very, very successful. The book says, what a con artist sells is hope. Hope that you'll be happier, healthier, richer, that you will emerge on the other side and somehow be superior. They play on that and they succeed. People fall for those false promises again and again. But the danger isn't just from official con artists. Because we get these promises coming at us from all angles. Follow me and I'll satisfy you. Serve me and I'll fulfill you. Invest your life in this and you'll have rest and peace. Live your life for me and I'll give you the world. This thing or this person will be your Messiah. This lifestyle or this kind of success will be your savior. It never lets up. The seduction never stops. It might not have stolen our hearts yesterday, but if we're not alert, it might fool us tomorrow. So every day we've got to remind ourselves, I know who the real Messiah is. I know who can give me true life and true peace. We have to remember every day, I want to gain the things that last forever. And so I'm willing to lose everything else. Our best defense against the counterfeit messiahs is to know the true messiah and to stay close to him. We've got to get up every morning and make that choice. Today, I'm going to be loyal to God's king. 
And when an Absalom comes along trying to steal my heart, I'm going to look behind the image. I'm going to remember there is nothing behind the image. Only Jesus has the real thing. He is the real thing. Let's pray. Lord God, we look at this piece of Israel's history and we realize it's not just history. It's real life. It teaches us about our lives today. And so we ask you, will you help us to see the ways our own hearts can be stolen? We think we'd never fall for what Israel fell for. But we can fall for so many other things. So will you give us clear heads? Help us to see what really matters and to see what's just actually a big show. Help us to see the difference between the counterfeit and the reality. Help us to see what will truly fill us and satisfy us and what will only deceive us and leave us empty. Will you give us the wisdom to trust your Messiah? Give us the wisdom to follow Jesus all the way to eternal life. And to do that, whatever other things we might lose in the process. Amen. Let's ask for his help as we sing, O Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end.